From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. For more than a year, life has been far from normal. And for most of that time, politicians around the world made promises about a return to normality once we had an effective vaccine. But now we have those vaccines and the end is still nowhere in sight. Today, Bianca O'Grady on the future of COVID in a world with immunisation. Bianca O'Grady is a science journalist and the resident COVID reporter for the Medical Republic. Bianca, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Frankie. Bianca, there's been very few pandemics which have been brought to a satisfactory end with vaccines. Why was the concept of COVID vaccines sold to the public with such a silver bullet attitude, do you think? Well, I mean, vaccines really are one of the greatest um, innovations of modern medicine. You know, the idea that you prevent disease safely and effectively um, in, you know, basically an entire population is really extraordinary. And when you, you look at the impact that that's had on, for example, just childhood mortality, you know, 100 years ago, one in three children didn't make it to the age of one, largely because of vaccine preventable illness. So, I mean, I, I don't want to definitely don't want to downplay the Um, I guess, the almost miraculous nature of vaccines and what they have done for human health. But in terms of pandemics, um, and I guess some of the pandemics that have, uh, sort of the the epidemics and pandemics that have um, affected such huge numbers of people, there haven't actually been any that have been brought to a close with vaccines. So I guess the big, obviously, the Spanish flu, they didn't have uh, flu vaccines back then, so that was never an option. Um, but the first SARS epidemic, um, MERS, and even Ebola, even though we now have an effective, um, effective vaccine for Ebola, none of those were brought to a close with vaccines. And obviously, we're seeing a resurgence in um in uh, Africa, I think it's Sierra Leone, we're seeing a resurgence in Ebola. So even with an effective vaccine, um, you know, these diseases do still come back. So it's, I guess, there's a lot of hope placed in vaccines because it will mean that a large section of the population will be protected from severe disease. Because ultimately, what you're trying to do is prevent death, first and foremost, um, And thankfully, the vaccines that have been developed and approved so far seem to be very good at preventing that outcome. You know, I think one of them, I can't remember which one, might have been Moderna, had something like 100% efficacy in preventing severe disease, which translates to to also to death. Um, But what they don't do is they don't um, completely prevent infection. Um, I think, obviously, some vaccines do, the smallpox vaccine being one example, other vaccines are more about um, really reducing the risk that if you do get infected, that you get severely ill. And and in some cases, obviously, preventing infection. Uh, measles, I think, is another one as well. But it's, it's not going to get us back to normal. What it will do is get us back to a normal where we learn to live with COVID-19. Um, how long that situation will last, I don't know. But they will enable us to go back to something resembling normality, but it will never be the pre-COVID normal. You know, that that world has changed, I think, irretrievably. So what kind of lifestyle can the public actually be promised in a world with COVID vaccination? Well, it's the idea of minimal casualties. Um, and, you know, if we think about the things that have been most devastating about this pandemic, um, you know, the, the deaths, um, high rates of deaths in, for example, aged care facilities in Australia, um, overseas, high rates of infection and deaths in more vulnerable, marginalised communities, um, in 
black and um, Asian minority ethnic communities, um, you know, low socioeconomic status, low education, uh, people working in those kind of very low paid service industries, you know, those groups have all been hit hardest by, um, by this disease. And unfortunately, with the nature of treatments that we've got for COVID it's expensive and um, really you want to stop people getting that sick that they require hospitalisation. So in that sense, you know, I think it's going to mean that, you know, I well, it's, you know, crystal ball gazing and so there's always the possibility of this being spectacularly wrong. But I think the evidence is suggesting that we may end up with COVID being something like the flu is, you know, where you get these seasonal epidemics, seasonal outbreaks, um, you know, it would be interesting to see what happens with the variants, whether they, we, you know, like the flu, we have a new uh, vaccine developed each year based on the new kind of strains of the flu that come through. Uh, but again, you know, if we do have a way of keeping people out of hospital, as we do for the flu, then it, it's going to be something that we treat in the same way as the flu, you know, that, that those vulnerable individuals those who are at greater risk of hospitalisation and death, such as the elderly, in this case, not the very young. So children seem to be relatively protected, uh, or not well protected from severe outcomes anyway. Um, but you know, hopefully, it will mean you know there will be a greater focus on protecting the most vulnerable in in our communities for whatever reason, whether that be their socioeconomic status, their jobs. Um, their you know comorbidities their ethnicity whatever makes people more vulnerable those are the communities that we need to uh, target with vaccination and who are likely to derive I guess the most benefit from it but you know it's it's going to be weird I mean I think we've changed in a way that I, I can't imagine us going back and and I think some of the changes that have happened are good ones you know that that notion of um, presenteeism you know going to work even when you're sick I think that's being dealt a knock, and as it should have been, you know, it's it's such a, uh, you know, it's like you're sick, <laughs> stay home, not the least being the fact that you were risk infecting your colleagues, but you're sick, you know, you need to get better, don't, don't, you know, th this notion that we just struggle on, no matter how revolting and snotty or gross we're feeling. And Bianca, how are new variants of COVID-19 as they emerge, how is it seen to intersect with our pandemic recovery plan? Well, the variants are a real headache. And the problem is the, the greater the numbers of infections around the world, the greater the likelihood of new variants emerging. You know, it's just, it's, it's a kind of a simple mathematical thing. If you've got more people infected, there's greater likelihood of mutations happening that, um, that change the nature of the virus in such a way that to, as to make it, for example, more trans, uh, transmissible as, as we've seen with the UK variant. Um, so, so far, the major variants, obviously, the UK, South African and Brazilian are the three major variants. I think there might have been one linked to Japan as well. Um, the UK variant does seem to um, be vulnerable to the vaccines, so the vaccines do offer protection against it. However, the South African variant, there's a bit of a question mark there. So there was a study, um, the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine in South Africa, where the dominant, obviously, the dominant variant is the South African variant. Um, and that found that there was little protection against mild to moderate infection. Uh, so people were still getting infected, were much more likely to get infected um, even after vaccination if they were, if the South African variant, um, they were exposed to the South African variant. And I think there was Novavax is another vaccine where there's been a suggestion of reduced protection 
against both the UK and South African variants. And the problem with these variants is the mutations are in the spike protein, which is the, uh, the protein on the virus surface that it uses to, I guess, engage with the ACE2 receptors on human cells and, and use that to gain entry. So it's kind of like, I guess, like the key. Um, and so, but all of the vaccines, as far as I can, as far as I know, all the vaccines developed so far target that spike protein because it's so pivotal to the vaccine's ability to reproduce that the idea is that the vaccine can't mutate that enough to escape the vaccine. Um, but obviously the virus is mutating that particular spike protein. So all of these variants are showing mutations in that spike protein. So, you know, that's, that's going to be an issue. But I think another issue that we have with vaccines is that we're not vaccinating everybody at the same time. Um, and that happens not only within communities, but it's also happening globally because, I mean, this is the biggest, single biggest vaccine rollout in human history. And then we have the bigger picture, global picture, that there are going to be a lot of countries, particularly low-middle-income countries, that are simply not able to get hold of enough vaccine. You know, they're at the bottom of the queue because all of the wealthy nations pushed to the front of the queue and waved their dollars around and said, could we please have two times as many vaccines as we need for our population? Um, and so, uh, you know, obviously we're seeing that, uh, the consequences of that, for example, in Papua New Guinea at the moment, which is um, experiencing a significant surge in infections, um, not a wealthy nation. The health infrastructure is challenged, so the vaccine rollout there uh, is going to be very difficult. And, um, you know, that, that means that the world has in the, these, will have these pockets and these reservoirs of virus, and those pockets and reservoirs will also enable the development of more variants, of, of more mutations to, um, you know, to challenge the vaccine program. So, I mean, you know, it'd be great if we could just vaccinate everyone all at once, but it's, you know, logistically, this is, this is a huge, huge challenge. And I'm not sure we're doing it quite as well as we could. Another area that many have argued needs a continued focus, mainly because, you know, the vaccine rollout has taken a lot of the research and a lot of the energy lately, is treatments for COVID-19, particularly severe cases. How far have we come in this area? Well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly initially the focus, the research focus was very much on treatment because, I mean, vaccines would have been happening in the background, but the more urgent pressing need was let's stop people from dying. Um, so there was a rapid development and trialling of a whole lot of treatments, the vast majority of which did kind of bugger all. Um, but, you know, there are... I, we've we've learned a lot about respiratory support, you know, even just prone positioning, you know, putting people on their stomachs so that they can breathe better. Um, the use of corticosteroids, dexamethasone, that was a, a huge leap in terms of improving outcomes and, and stopping people from dying. Um, you know, there's been mixed evidence around remdesivir, which is the antiviral, I think was originally developed for either malaria or Ebola. I can't quite remember. But um, you know, there, there's, there is evidence, I think, that, that that can reduce the likelihood of uh, death or severe outcomes in some patients. But there's a kind of a sweet spot. They can't be too severe or they can't be too mild a case. There's a, there's a kind of a, a window of opportunity to treat with something like remdesivir. Uh, there's another, you know, the monoclonal antibody um, area. There's been quite a few um, drug treatments that have come out from, you know, trying to find monoclonal antibodies that can attack the virus. And again, I don't think there's any that have really uh, stood out that have de delivered the kind of results that we really need 
from a treatment for this. And I think at the moment it's it's really come, going to come down to, you know, good res- uh, respiratory support, corticosteroids, and probably a lot of crossing of fingers. You know, it'd be great if we could just, if there was a kind of a, you know, a treatment that we knew would instantly get people, you know, up and running, but so far, no luck. And the ban on international travel in Australia is set to lift in June, but many have already said it's highly likely that the government will extend that order, perhaps indefinitely. Surely, though, even just economically, we can't keep the borders closed forever. So where does this leave us, Bianca? This is a huge, huge question and a, and a huge challenge for governments. And, and, you know, Australia fairly early on um, adopted some of the strictest international border controls in the world. Um, so, yeah, there was no entry from international travellers. There was no cruise vessels. Um, there was restrictions placed on outbound international travel by Australians. And those restrictions obviously are still in place. Um, and they've you know, the government recently extended that. Uh, it's called the Human Biosecurity Emergency Periods. Uh, that was extended by three months to June, uh, which recognises the fact that this virus is still rampant overseas. Um, the variants are still rampant. And, we, you know, we see that with pretty much every single case that's reported in Australia um, at the moment, apart from the, you know, the few that, that uh, came out in Queensland. You know, these are all from international travellers. Um, so we, if we had totally closed borders there we, we wouldn't have this virus but that doesn't work it doesn't work for economic reasons it doesn't work for trade um, so you know it it's going to be a tricky one and I guess this is where we come back to what I mentioned before about this idea that you still have you know potentially large areas of the globe that will be unvaccinated or will have poor uptake of vaccination um, and you know those uh, Basically, until we vaccinate everybody, we're all at risk. So this kind of um, vaccine nationalism, you know, of of wealthy countries buying up, uh, bagsing, you know, huge amounts of vaccine, more than is needed, is kind of counterproductive because, you know, it's all well for us to have enough vaccine for our entire population. But if Papua New Guinea is still extremely vulnerable um, and is experiencing massive outbreaks, then you know, that's that's right on our doorstep. And, um, you know, when we're not safe until they're safe. So there's, you know, there's a fairly strong argument for vaccine altruism instead of nationalism. But, you know, obviously the one solution that's come up quite a, quite a bit is this idea of vaccine or immunity passports. So, you know, perhaps, um, and these can, there's a lot of different ways that these might work. But I think the basic principle is that if you have these, passport it says that you are protected and also therefore less likely to transmit your you know transmit the virus wherever you may go but the problem is there's a lot of unknowns in this you know we don't know if people who have either been infected previously or um, who've been vaccinated we don't know if they have zero chance of transmission there you know there's evidence to suggest that the risk of transmission, so for example, if you've been vaccinated, you get exposed to the virus, you do get the infection, but obviously you get a very mild version if you've been vaccinated. But can you transmit that? And the evidence says, yes, you can, but it's at a lower rate than would be the case if you hadn't been vaccinated. So immunity passports, you know, at their simplest would be just to say this person has been vaccinated. You know, the challenge comes with, well, what does that mean about that person? What level of risk do they pose to, the de- to their destination, 
Um, and that's a bigger question, that really until we understand the effect of vaccines more precisely, we don't really, we won't really know how to use vaccine passports. So, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> there's so much that's just playing out in real time. It's, it's extraordinarily complex and fascinating. And I, you know, I certainly can't picture what the world will be like in five years. I, I just can't imagine where we'll be because it's, so many uncertainties, you know, even when you think like the US is something like one in 25 people are vaccinated there now, but there's now talk that their, their infection rates are going up again and there's talk of them going into a fourth wave. You know, the infections globally have been climbing for the six week, six, yeah, sixth week running um, and deaths are starting to go up again. So, you know, we, we just, just when we think, you know, we're getting a lid on things, then something else changes. We get, and, and so, the level of uncertainty is exceedingly high. Bianca, thank you for your time. Thanks, Frankie.